Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Dexter Fergie, and you're listening to New Books in Intellectual History. Today I'll be speaking with Sam Lebovic about his fantastic new book called... Hi there, I'm Dexter Fergie, and you're listening to New Books in Intellectual History. Today I'll be speaking with Sam Lebovic about his fantastic new book called Free Speech and Unfree News, The Paradox of Press Freedom in America. It was published by Harvard University Press in 2016. The book traces the history of press freedom in the 20th century. He shows how the meaning of press freedom has always been fraught and contested. Lebovic approaches this history with an attention to what he calls the everyday politics of information. He explores how journalists, publishers, government officials, and others experienced, debated, and tried to change press freedom. It is a history that can also help us rethink many of the contemporary problems of information, including government classification and the continual collapse of the news industry. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here with Sam Lebovic to talk about his new book, Free Speech and Unfree News. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. Uh, I found your book exceptionally rich and uh, for someone who's also researching the history of information, uh, pretty inspiring. Oh, wonderful. That's lovely to hear. So before we get, discuss your book, can we uh, talk about how you came to history? Uh, what drew you to this discipline? Uh, I don't know that there's a particularly interesting answer uh, to that question. It's probably similar to a lot of people's answers. That interested in the world, uh, interested in the discipline of history because it didn't require me to presume one methodological approach that political science or government or law would have required um, and inspiring undergraduate teachers. Um, so that kind of constellation of things. Okay, great. Your, your book is impressive in its breadth and, and innovative in its argument. What drew you to press freedom as an object of historical inquiry? Sure. So I've always been kind of interested in questions around media and democracy and the way that cultures work. Um, and I was particularly interested at one point in debates around mass culture in the 1930s and 1940s, um, reading a lot of work inspired by the Birmingham School. Uh, so work like Larry Mays on Hollywood, uh, Michael Denning, uh, and so forth. And as I was reading uh, particularly Michael Denning's Cultural Front, um, which is about the unionization uh, of workers in the mass culture industries and the kind of labor politics of popular culture in the Depression, I kept seeing re- references to the Newspaper Guild and wondered why the kind of approaches we take into the study of film and radio and television, popular culture and their politics hadn't been applied to the news media in the same way. So I thought I'd have a look at the Newspaper Guild and see what, if there was an interesting story there uh, and went to uh, editor and publisher, which is the trade journal for newspaper, the newspaper industry, and just sort of was flicking through the pages of that. Uh, and just started to find all of these very rich debates about what a free press would be and should be in the 20th century. Uh, and that dovetailed with some things I'd been thinking about based on readings in sort of contemporary media criticism, 
um, and a general sense that the state of press freedom in late 20th century, early 21st century America didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, and so from there, from that kind of seeing that rich set of sources in the primary material, um, I then was able to connect up the study to a variety of questions about history of capitalism, history of democracy that were interesting to me. And the project just kind of went from there. Perfect. And what exactly drew you to U.S. history? Because judging by your accent, you don't appear to be uh, a native-born U.S. <laughs> citizen. Uh, no, I'm, a, I'm an Australian. Um, so I get a little prickly about this question sometimes, actually, because I feel like uh, foreigners studying American history are often asked to explain why they're interested in American history, whereas American historians... Are, like Native American historians who study French history or German history don't have the same uh, requirements. Um, you know, there's some part of me that's always been interested in American history. Uh, growing up in a fairly Americanized mass culture is clearly part of it. Um, and then the questions that are of interest to me around liberalism, the flow of culture, ideas and information, uh, I think America is ground zero for those debates in the, around the world today um, and kind of the American attitudes and the American uh, structures for those phenomena are important. So there's that. Um, I also think there are more quotidian reasons, which is I, I don't speak any foreign languages. So mm-hmm. that left me thinking about Australia, the UK or America, um, <laughs> you know, and I had a good, a good undergraduate advisor who was an American historian who really inspired me to get interested in modern history. I don't know if you'll be able to distinguish my accent, but I'm actually from Canada. Uh, so I, I share your prickliness at that question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I did pick up a touch, but um, no. So it's a, it's, a legitimate, it's a legitimate question, and I appreciate why people ask it. Um, but I don't think there's an interesting answer, unfortunately. So your approach to uh, press freedom uh, is really fascinating. And instead of looking at, um, you know, let's say jurisprudence or abstract theorizing, uh, you focus on what you call the everyday politics of information. Can you elaborate on this? Sure. Uh, So it just, it's really a move that's borrowed from the new legal history more broadly, um, that we have a, you know, we get a sort of, the legal history story of press freedom is defined through these kind of great cases that just touch at the very tops uh, of sort of practice of the press. And we talk a lot about press freedom as only a jurisprudential idea or Mm. as an abstract political philosophy. Um, But there's actually also a real press that actually has freedom that, you know, in practice that waxes and wanes in various ways and is subject to various constraints that aren't always the ones that the law addresses or the philosophy addresses. So, Similarly to work on like wage labor or free labor ideologies um, that look not just at cases and the kind of formal uh, philosophy of free labor, but are interested in actually what does that social institution look like as it works in an actual economy and an actual polity. I wanted to do the same thing for the press. Um, And so that then takes you into thinking about a whole host of issues, uh, labor relations, economics, uh, sort of everyday relationships between the press and the state that aren't defined by the great censorship cases, but are defined by things like handouts and publicity relations and press conferences. Um, I thought that would be a more rich uh, approach to the subject um, that sort of can show you the implications of American press freedom as they play out in practice as much as in philosophy or uh, law. Great. So 
the first chapter called uh, The Inadequacy of Speech Rights um, sketches the longer history of press freedom in the United States. And then it dives into the particular debates of the 1910s and 1920s of uh, over press freedom. And you show how just as the United States Supreme Court began to embrace a modern notion of free speech, i.e. one that protected speech from the state, it was already insufficient for modern conditions of the press. And your protagonists in this chapter range from uh, the Supreme Court judge, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, John Dewey, and then especially Walt Littman. Um, can you take us into this debate? Um, what were the broad contours and why was the First Amendment already insufficient for the press? Sure. So the starting off point of this chapter is just to take very seriously how novel our modern First Amendment is, even in the formal jurisprudence, right? It's really only after World War I in 1919 that the Supreme Court begins to imagine what the First Amendment might mean. And it's only in dissent in one of those cases in Abrams that Oliver Wendell Holmes first starts talking about the free market in ideas um, in the kind of modern sense. And that struck me as it struck a number of legal historians and intellectual historians as something of a surprise. Um, you know, by those decades, the sort of progressive era through World War I, uh, modern political philosophy is not that enamored of classical individual liberties, right? They're sort of thinking about social rights or the new liberalism more broadly. And so it was interesting to me that, at, as it has been to other scholars, that at this moment, uh, you get a kind of very strong modern articulation of a classical vision of individual liberty, negative rights. And in the press, that was a particularly uh, odd decision uh, because the newspapers that are protected by the First Amendment have undergone profound changes in the late 19th century. They've really begun to industrialize. They're owned by increasingly wealthy newspaper barons that are binding large holdings together across the country in newspaper chains. Uh, press diversity is beginning to decline uh, by 1919, um, which will then sort of be the long history of the newspaper industry across the 20th century. It's a story of decline from late 19th century heights. And so I was curious about juxtaposing a kind of classical vision of a free press on the Jeffersonian model against uh, a very different press from the early republic uh, to that which exists by 1919 and wondered if anyone talked about that. And it turns out that people talked about it a lot. And Walter Lippmann and John Dewey were perhaps the most famous uh, interrogators of the state of modern public opinion. And their debate is a set piece in modern intellectual history. But I realized it was actually just as much a debate about the disconnect between modern philosophies of uh, the First Amendment the idea of a kind of classical right to a free press is only negative liberty and what they saw as the actually existing state of the newspaper industry. Um, and so what they were trying to do was imagine uh, a socially liberal vision of press freedom, uh, one focused on positive rights, um, and that then spills out into their more public uh, and more well-known debates about what public opinion should mean in a democracy. Great. I'm always struck by just how uh, that you know so-called Dewey Lippmann debate provides like so much for so many different scholars. So I just interviewed Daniel Bessner about his uh, book on the rise of defense intellectuals, and he he sort of rehashes that debate, but it looks completely different in your huh. book. 
I, I won't ask you who who has a more convincing rehash, um, but uh, <laughs> you know they're very they're very rich scholars of problems that are still with us. So I think they're foundational texts to keep returning to. Yeah, absolutely. That debate's not over. So the next chapter uh, called uh, Interwar Threats to Press Freedom um, looks at how courts began to protect free speech, sorry, protect speech against state censorship by invoking the First Amendment. In the general crisis of the 1930s, the, the flow of information was really fraught and was critiqued by both liberals and conservatives, um, but for completely different reasons. So, you know, liberals were concerned with the effects that the consolidation of the press had on the content of their newspapers. Conservative critics, on the other hand, thought that the the new activist New Deal state uh, and its public relations apparatus was a step towards uh, totalitarianism. Can you just like briefly share with listeners a little bit about um, the, the, the 1930s and why this crisis was so important to the history that you're telling? Sure. So if the first chapter shows that there is a kind of formal problem, a uh, formal disconnect uh, between the, re- the idea of a free press as emerging in modern First Amendment jurisprudence and then a couple of intellectuals who are kind of most interested in thinking about what democracy should mean sort of clue in on a problem uh, in how the newspaper industry is actually working. Um, Chapter two shows that that, those debates were not just kind of intellectual debates, that the problems that Dewey and Lippmann were concerned about become really concrete political crises in the 30s amidst depression, rise of fascism, the emergence of uh, the sort of the oncoming of the war. And so what that chapter does is does the same juxtaposition as chapter one does. It sort of shows on the one hand, you start to get the development of modern speech rights and a well-protected First Amendment right to publish what you want in the courts, uh, most famously in Nevers, Minnesota, which is really the first time that the Supreme Court says that the First Amendment prevents state governments from censoring their press. Um, but even as that happens, people are saying, you know, this is the 18th century vision of the press freedom. How does this who's help us with the fact that, like, William Randolph Hearst has so much control over the information that's put before American people? And again, Hearst in these years, we know, is an incredibly reactionary political player. Right? I mean, he's, uh, and so people who are in favor of the New Deal, in favor of the popular front, are really upset about what they see as the corporate control of the organs of public opinion, which is exactly what Littman and Dewey had been arguing about. But now in the Depression, it's taken on these real political uh, political stakes. And so you get boycotts of newspapers. You get, uh, you know, 1936 election when the press all comes out in support of Landon over FDR. You get public protests outside the Chicago Tribune building um, and a lot of anger about uh, the public impact of what is seen to be a right-wing mainstream media. And it's a very different moment of populist anger about the political bias of the press. Um, at the same time as that's happening, the New Deal administration is trying to work out, well, how can they get their message to the, the American people if they can't rely on these hostile newspapers? Uh, and so they start developing a public apparatus uh, to, to distribute information about administrative governance, right? Um, and, the new, and the conservative uh, Republicans and the conservative press really just howl that this is uh, the equivalent of totalitarian propaganda mills. Um, and they're very worried that the New Deal is going to try to censor them or regulate them or bypass them with status propaganda. 
Um, and so there's a very serious clash around how information should be distributed to the American people, um, in which neither side thinks that the First Amendment is any real guide. They sort of, the First Amendment's not relevant to this debate, but there's a serious political contestation over whether the press is in fact free uh, in the 30s. Mm-hmm. Great. So the next chapter, chapter three, uh, called A New Deal for the Corporate Press, um, uh, sort of follows up on uh, that debate between um, uh, you know, conservatives and reformists in the 1930s. And it explores how even the most minimal attempts to regulate the newspaper industry failed. And uh, uh, here you show um, re- like really interestingly how conservative pro-business lawyers um, for the newspaper industry started to pioneer what you call a novel use of the First Amendment in which they use, uh, and I'm quoting you here, uh, civil liberties as a tool for free market politics. Uh, what were some of the government's attempts to, to regulate the newspaper industry and why did they fail so much? Sure. So there's really three major efforts that are made. Um, And again, this flows directly out of the previous chapter where the New Dealers are very concerned about corporate press and the meaning of democracy. So it's not surprising that when they see a problem in public governance, the New Dealers say, well, the state should be able to regulate. Um, They're going to treat the newspaper industry just like any other industry that's in need of some kind of oversight for the public good. Um, Now, the New Dealers are also committed civil libertarians, so they're very cautious about what they propose. Um, And there are really three measures that are proposed. Uh, And as you said, none of them is particularly on its face uh, sexy or interesting. Um, One is there's going to be a newspaper code under the National Recovery Administration that should regulate production practices, labor practices, pricing practices of the newspaper industry, just like any other industry. Uh, The second is a truth and advertising bill proposed by the Food and Drug Administration, uh, which is really in to protect consumers from deceptive advertising, but is also seen as a way of uh, rolling back the control of advertising uh, powers over the kind of organs of public opinion. And third, there's an antitrust case against the Associated Press Wire Service, uh, which the Wire Service distributes sort of news reports to member, member newspapers in the 1930s. Uh, at that time, you could only have one uh, AP subscription per city, and newspapers that didn't have one of those AP subscriptions felt that that was an unfair business practice and they should be able to purchase the AP if they wanted. Um, and so that goes to the Supreme Court as an antitrust action. Uh, now, all three of those measures are designed to address only the economics of the newspaper industry. Right? They're all efforts to regulate the newspaper economics to create more diverse information for the American public. There's an understanding by New Deal reformers that a press that's increasingly monopoly controlled, that's perhaps engaged in unfair pricing and advertising practices to drive out competitors, um, that's really reliant on advertising dollars, is perhaps not in the best position to provide the news to the American people. But it stops very far short of doing anything to regulate anything in the editorial room or anything in news content. Despite that, the newspaper industry lawyers, particularly a guy called Elisha Hansen, uh, who no one's ever heard of, but is general counsel for the American Newspaper Publishers Association, and one of the really important forgotten figures in the history of the First Amendment, uh, Hansen argues that all of these efforts constitute government interference with the press that would violate the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is a really novel effort to use the First Amendment, which is supposed to protect freedom of speech, to cover all economic activity by the newspaper industry. 
Um, and it's sort of, in my telling, the opening wedge of what we now see as a much more common use by corporations of the First Amendment to block all types of business regulation on the grounds that they interfere with the circulation of information. And the press claims these rights in the 1930s. Um, it doesn't have a huge amount of success at the court uh, in pushing these arguments because it doesn't have to. Um, it really succeeds in the court of public opinion and in terms of bringing pressure to bear on new dealers so that they water down their efforts. And the newspaper code basically is the weakest code of the NRA and exempts all sorts of behavior from the newspaper industry uh, on the grounds that it needs to protect the First Amendment. Um, you know, there's a kind of wonderful little moment in this debate where the newspaper newspaper regulators say, but we, of course regular laws apply to the newspaper industry. Just because of the First Amendment doesn't mean that you're exempt from the laws against child labor, for instance. And the newspaper industry says, actually, now that you mention it, we think it probably does, right? Uh, we need to be free to hire newsboys otherwise we, to deliver the papers, otherwise we won't have a free press, right? And these are convincing arguments. People are afraid of stepping on First Amendment rights. So these efforts are watered back and rolled down in various ways. And then the only one that goes to the Supreme Court is the antitrust case against the Associated Press, uh, which is a very confusing decision in which the Justice Department actually wins its antitrust case against the Associated Press. It forces the Associated Press to sell its subscriptions to all who want to buy it, um, but stops far short of defining a public interest um, in press diversity as a grounds for anti antitrust action. And so you've got a very ambiguous um, precedent set in 1945 um, that it's theoretically possible to bring an antitrust action in the newspaper field, but the justices are so worried about that overstepping the grounds of the First Amendment and creating a possibility of government interference with the newspapers uh, that it looks unlikely that that will be used for much in the face of ongoing newspaper consolidation uh, after World War II. Great. Um, so uh, on to the next chapter called Dependent Journalists, Independent Journalism. Uh, this chapter looks at how journalists themselves sought to change their industry through, uh, f at first, professionalization, and then later through the unionization efforts of the Newspaper Guild. And here you show uh, how journalists understood their own precarity as itself a threat to press freedom and even objectivity. Um, but alas, they, they failed to achieve their reform reformist goals. Uh, can you say something about this? Uh, again, why did they fail? And uh, what do their efforts say about the concept of press freedom? Sure. So this is a really a, a, a partner chapter to chapter three, right? It's, a, it's another way of trying to reform the newspaper industry in the 1930s to bring it more into line with what New Dealers and Popular Fronters thought was the public interest, right? There's a general sense here that newspaper reporters can't publish Tr the truth, or they can't publish objectively in the 1930s, because they are dependent on publishers for jobs. And that there's a general sense that the publisher knows what the line is, or should be on any given story, and that if you go beyond that, uh, you can lose your job. And uh, there's a real sense in the 1930s, that the newspaper industry is really biased, particularly on labor issues, uh, where the newspaper barons are more conservative, uh, opposed to the New Deal and opposed to unionization. So working journalists uh, who see themselves as a working class um, without job security also argue that they need A, better working conditions in, uh, in the Depression, higher wages, and B, um, greater job security so that they can fearlessly report on the news as they see fit. And then that way the public will get a better sense of what's going on. 
And so they attempt to form a union, uh, the Newspaper Guild, which was started in 1933. And this triggers a lot of uh, hand-wringing and arguing in the press. Um, the Newspaper Guild argues that you need something like a professional core uh, of accredited journalists uh, who are free to report according to their own standards, but they don't think that should be set by a kind of American Bar Association or some kind of professional accreditation society. Those things had been floated with earlier, but discredited. Um, they think they really need a union uh, to give them job security. Uh, the publishers argue, uh, probably unsurprisingly, that any uh, unionization in the newspaper industry would itself undermine press freedom by making the, news the newsroom the captive of a political faction, and that this would not produce objective journalism, but actually undermine the very possibility of it. And uh, you get a sequence of arguments and debates. The Supreme Court uh, is called in. It's actually one of, the, one of the five cases that decides that the Wagner Act is constitutional, uh, is in a case about unionization in the Associated Press. It's a newspaper guild case. Uh, but the Supreme Court basically says, unionization is not of itself a violation of the First Amendment, which is what the newspaper industry wanted them to say. They just sort of say you can unionize, but whether or not the publishers want to fire being part of a union is entirely up to them. Um, and so then you get a clash within the newsrooms between publishers and journalists, standard union politics, can we unionize, can we not? Uh, the journalists increasingly begin to trade away more radical demands about control over hiring and firing and control over objectivity uh, for wage gains. And then in the late 1930s, there's actually a factional split within the Newspaper Guild where uh, the more conservative wing of the union argues that actually these strong demands that we need to reimagine the labor of journalism, the people who are making those claims are all uh, really just shills for the Communist Party. Sort of, it's an early red scare in the newspaper guild, and they've got an argument. Um, you know, unfortunately, the more radical members of the newspaper guild were fellow travellers at the very least, and that meant that by the late nineteen thirties, in the kind of thickening geopolitical gloom, they weren't necessarily reporting on things objectively, but were trying to follow a party line. Um, and there's a lovely moment at the newspaper guild convention uh, in nineteen forty one where they're having one of these interminable debates about objectivity and labour relations, and the more conservative members notice that on Sunday morning, the news, oh, I think it's Sunday morning, on one of the mornings of the conference, the newspaper, the more radical members have run to get the Daily Worker to work out what their attitude to foreign policy is. And overnight has been uh, Operation Barbarossa, where Hitler has invaded Russia or the Soviet Union. And so they argue fairly that you're not being objective journalists now, you're changing your attitude to the war and how you think we should support or cover foreign policy based on the geopolitical maneuverings of the Soviet Union. And so they sort of discredit this more radical vision that there should be uh, politicized unionization in the newsrooms in favor of wage gains and what we think of now as a more professional ethos where journalists are paid more like middle-class workers um, but they don't have any job security still. Um, and that's fine in the 1940s and 1950s, but really sets uh, a, uh, a dangerous precedent for what will happen to journalists when the economics of the newspaper industry change uh, in the 90s and 2000s. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, something that your book does really well is um, just show how fears of um, totalitarianism and then later fears of communism, um, more specifically, just play a huge role in the conventional understanding of press freedom. And into the next chapter, chapter five, the weapon of information and the good war. Um, so this this chapter traces a really fascinating and complex history of press freedom um, during the Second World War. You know, citizens retained their the right to free expression. Publishers retained their right to publish what they'd like, and uh, the state deployed relatively uh, little propaganda. Um, yet you show how, at the same time, uh, the state began to rely on new information control practices, um, such as classification, uh, and also encouraging the press to censor itself. Can you elaborate on some of these changes and perhaps why so few people saw them as a threat to press freedom? Sure. So the problem you've got in World War II, unlike World War One, is that censorship has become discredited. And I mean, in World War One, there's a kind of sense that, well, you know, in the public interest, we've got to try regulating information. Um, we've got a sort of census, uh, seditious speech, right, the Espionage Act. I mean, partly because those were seen as overreach that then produced the rise of the modern First Amendment, and in part because of the emphasis that had been placed on the way that totalitarian states, particularly Nazi Germany, regulated free speech rights. By World War Two, the New Dealers, who are committed civil libertarians, need to work out how to wage a war uh, without violating free speech. Um, And so the solution they hit upon is to focus more on regulating information and leaving speech free. And this sort of fork in the road that Lippmann had sort of identified in the 1920s now becomes quite manifest in national security government policy. And so there are two strategies the government really relies on during World War II. Uh, The first is what it cleverly calls voluntary censorship, uh, which is it doesn't pass any laws that say the press can't publish certain things, but it establishes a small office of former newspaper workers, former journalists, who write to other journalists and just say, this is the kind we really think you shouldn't publish unless you want to hurt the war effort. But if you want to protect American boys fighting overseas, you really shouldn't publish this. Uh, If you have any questions, give us a call. We'll be happy to guide you. We're not going to tell you you can't publish, but we can sort of recommend what you should do. And they're very successful in inculcating a kind of practice of self-censorship among the press, um, which is very different from what will emerge uh, later. Uh, The second measure uh, emerges deep within the security branches of the state, which is that these uh, these voluntary measures work fairly well during the war, actually. Um, And there's plenty of examples in the book to show you how it works. Um, But security-minded officials concerned about things like the atomic secret, are getting increasingly worried that you can't rely on these journalists to censor themselves, that stuff might slip out. And so they begin to draft general classification orders and think about ways to keep information secret within the state uh, rather than rely on censoring journalists from publishing it. And this, I think, is a foundational shift in the logic of censorship in modern American history. Uh, Previous to this, when secrets needed to be kept, generally the way that they were kept was by punishing their utterance in the sphere of publication, right? So something might get out, someone makes a criticism of the war effort or spills secrets of a secret treaty, right? They're prosecuted publicly for what they've said. After World War II, uh, it's increasingly considered anathema to censor expression, right? People need to be allowed to express their own opinions, say what they want. 
that's what free speech and a democracy means. Instead, there's an argument that free speech doesn't mean access to information. Right? So that the state has its prerogatives to secure information at the source. And that if we can censor and control information within the state and prevent it from getting into the public, well then public discourse is still completely free. People have the right to express their opinions as they'd like. Um, but we've also managed to secure national inform information of importance to national security and national defense. And it's seen as a balancing act and a compromise. And compared to World War I, when there were very visible censorship cases, right, where people were arrested for criticizing the war, uh, it looks a lot more democratic. Um, it looks like a war in which there's no real censorship. It's actually the case, though, that the mode of censorship has just shifted. Um, and people don't notice this because they're focused on people at the time don't notice this as much, and historians haven't noticed it as much, uh, because they're more classic press freedom cases with formal censorship um, and have missed the kind of politics of information classification that are emerging. Great. Uh, on to chapter six, uh, the Cold War dilemma of a free press. Uh, now, this chapter takes us into the immediate post-war period in which many Americans, uh, including um, uh, the Senator William Benton and the Associated Press President Kent Cooper, um, advocated for a global free flow of information. Uh, and to do so, they sought to globalize that uh, classical negative liberty vision of press freedom uh, in the United Nations and uh, more broadly, the global human rights regime. So what, did ex what exactly did these people mean by the free flow of information? What was motivating the U.S. to globalize this vision of the free press? And how did other countries respond to the free flow doctrine? Sure. So you know, this chapter deals with one particular instance of that, uh, that dynamic. Um, one of the things I'm working on now is actually a broader history of efforts to globalize free flow of information after World War II. Um, and so it's a complicated story that I can't fully sketch right now. Um, but in the case of the press, what's really interesting there is that, you know, as of 1938-39, there are all of these debates, which I've shown in the earlier chapters, about whether America has a free press or not, like does the press work in America? Like Henry Luce, just after, you know, declaring in the Americans that there's going to be an American century and that America has the best informed people in the world and they need to spread their values everywhere. He actually says, you know what, looking at home, the state of press freedom is very confused. And uh, he gives a couple hundred thousand dollars to some academics at the University of Chicago to study whether there is in fact a free press in the US. And that produces the Hutchins Commission reports and uh, uh, is an important moment in the intellectual history of the press. What was interesting to me in this chapter was that at the same time as all of that's happening, internationally, the US is positioning itself as a champion of free press rights and as if it's worked out all of these problems that only five years earlier it was worried about. And I was just interested in playing with that tension and thinking about the way that America's new status as victor in World War II, as global hegemon, actually helps resolve some of the debates that had happened domestically and helps solidify a consensus around the fact that American, America's classical vision of press freedom actually is a free press. Um, and those debates, which happen at Geneva and in the United Nations, are a key site in which that happens, I think. So the delegation to these Geneva conferences, which are trying to write free press laws for the world, 
actually includes both representatives of the publishers and the president of the American Newspaper Guild, right? People who had been at each other's throats five years earlier, but now form a united front arguing for traditional American press freedom against foreign visions, right? And those foreign visions take a variety of forms, but the US treats them all as statist and or totalitarian efforts to regulate the press. And what's interesting here is that often these people are quoting back American domestic press criticism from the 1930s at the US delegates and saying, but you just, 10 years ago, you yourself, the newspaper guild, were saying you don't have a free press because the corporations control it and that we need to regulate it. And now you're saying internationally, there can be no regulation. We need to allow the Associated Press to do, to sort of move freely throughout the world and spread objective information. But only like last year, there was an antitrust case at the Supreme Court saying the Associated Press was a monopoly that wasn't acting in the public interest. And in that kind of geopolitical standoff, I think a lot of debates about what is a free press in America become uh, clarified for American actors, and that what had previously been internal domestic criticisms become externalized and treated as foreign criticisms and are, are beyond the pale of American political discourse. Perfect. Uh, the next chapter was a treat. Uh, the ri- it's called the rise of state secrecy, and uh, here you s- historicize secrecy um, as a function of the state, and uh, you write that as First Amendment rights grew in significance, uh, government censorship shifted its logic and began to focus on the regulation of information, not publication, on the regulation of secrets, not speech. Why did the federal government institutionalize secrecy and classification, and how did journalists? navigate this new information environment? Sure. So this flows directly out of the culture that I looked at in World War II, which mm-hmm. is, you know, this new practice of classifying information at the source seems like a democratic way to handle state secrets. And with the rise of the Cold War, uh, there's a new sense that there's a lot of information that needs to be kept secret from foreign spies. Um, but how do we do that without interfering with speech rights? Now, obviously, there's a bunch of interference with speech rights during uh, the McCarthy era. But my argument is that's actually a more fleeting moment that there's sort of, you have the Smith case, the Supreme Court says we can censor Communist Party leaders, but then by the late 50s, there's a beginning to be a reversal and we'll get the kind of modern respect for even communist speech uh, emerging in America. What doesn't ever reverse, though, is the classification order, uh, which is established, sort of flirted with during World War II, But then it's established for the first time in 1951 when Truman, by executive order, establishes a government-wide classification system, right, which is familiar to us today because it's still roughly the same system where you have top secret, secret, restricted information, and that you need to pass a security clearance to get access to that information. Um, And that's the way the state is going to keep information secure in the interests of national security during the Cold War. And what's important to me is that isn't seen by many people as an interference with the First Amendment or with free speech, because it doesn't censor anybody. It just censors the state employee, actually. But for various reasons, the US has not considered state employees to have First Amendment speech rights. And so it's seen as a democratic compromise that doesn't that leaves free the sphere of publication, that leaves the press free to be democratic. Of course, once you start to classify huge amounts of information every year, um, you've completely transformed the relationship between the state and the press. And, and journalists are now going to be desperate for ways to get access to that secret information in order to report on what's happening. 
So at times, there's going to be vast domains of foreign relations activity that are not in the public sphere at all. Think here about sort of CIA adventurism in the 1950s. Um, but at other times, what you'll get is a kind of ecosystem of leaks and off-the-record disclosures in which journalists have access to inside information from trusted politicians, and politicians will give information to trusted journalists that can appear in newspapers off the record. And this completely changes the relationship between journalists and the uh, national security state. Um, it makes it much less likely that journalists will be able to criticize public officials um, because then they'll cut off their access to information. And so the rise of the kind of Georgetown set, the kind of clubby insider foreign policy consensus of the 1950s is, I think, in large part, although obviously not entirely attributable to the kind of new levels of control over information. Um, there is some pushback to the classification system. Um, you get the rise of the freedom of information movement uh, for the first time in American history, um, which interestingly actually has its institutional origins in those debates we talked about in the last chapter for global freedom of information. Uh, there are all of these world freedom of information committees among journalism societies in the late 1940s who were trying to spread freedom of information to other parts of the world. And then with the classification order in 1951 and the rise of state secrecy, they start to realize that actually there are problems of information access in America as well. And they drop the word world from their title and reform as freedom of information committees and start advocating for access to government secrets. Um, and they will ultimately produce the Freedom of Information Act of 1966, which will then be amended in 1974. Um, and that's seen as the counterbalancing reform measure to state secrecy. Um, my argument in the, in the chapter is that I think we are a little too optimistic about the way we tell the history of the Freedom of Information Act. We normally talk about it as an unprecedented breakthrough for transparency. Um, I think if you see it as a response to the new rise of state secrecy, you realize it's a really weak response because actually the Freedom of Information Act exempts the classification system and says that information that's been classified in the national security does not have to be turned over when it's foiled. And so what we often talk about as a new transparency regime in the late 1960s I think is actually an accommodationist moment, uh, which consolidates the legitimacy of a classification system that really only emerged uh, after World War II. Yeah, that section of the Freedom of Information Act really surprised me. I, I didn't, I never really realized how limited it actually was. Um, just to go back to the sometimes like the absurd circumstances of classification. Uh, one of my favorite parts from the chapter, uh, just a little factoid, was uh, when the Department of Labor had actually classified. Uh, the army's purchase of peanut butter uh, because they were concerned that enemies would be able to determine the size of uh, the U.S. Army uh, based on peanut butter purchases. Um, but that was already public knowledge. Right. <laughs> so, and then also, like, you know, the, of course, Kennedy's um, missile gap um, criticisms um, could never actually be countered because U.S. superiority um, militarily was classified knowledge. So moving on to chapter eight called Leaks, Mergers, and Nixon's Assault on the News. Um, this chapter explores the, the strange space that journalism occupied in the 1960s and 70s. Um, you know, it was at once the high watermark for journalists challenging authority. Uh, you know, you have the Pentagon Papers, the uh, Watergate coverage, um, the emergence of, uh, you know, the so-called new journalism. 
Um, and yet it was also more precarious than ever um, due to deregulation and the continual collapse of the industry. What are we to make of this period and how does it fit in the longer story that you're trying to tell? Yeah, no, so the, that's a, I find it a really fascinating moment. And this chapter in some ways is the least uh, tightly focused on one dynamic because all of the dynamics that have been earlier at play, I think, come to a head in the early, uh, late 1960s and early 1970s. Um, the way that I make sense of them is to say that if you think about all the big beats that we think of in that period, uh, the rise of the new journalism is about the politics of free expression, right? but it's actually built on uh, journalists imagining themselves as individual artists and kind of freelancers, much more than it is them thinking of themselves as waged laborers or people who need unionization like the newspaper guild. So again, it's a focus on expression rather than uh, information and reporting. The Pentagon Papers decision is about the right of the press to publish state secrets. It's not about the right of uh, federal employees to leak state secrets. So, right, was never found not guilty of leaking secrets. The case was thrown out because Nixon couldn't help himself and interfered uh, by founding the plumbers who went to break into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. And that laid the groundwork for the Watergate case, which we think of as the high watermark of kind of watchdog journalism that overthrew the state. But actually, Woodward and Bernstein are entirely reliant on record, on leaks from the security apparatus, from FELT and the FBI, uh, to, and it's their ability to cultivate those inside sources that allows them to kind of keep the story going and get it out into the public. Um, and there's no reason in sort of the jurisprudence or in the political relationships or in the structures of power to assume that you will always get a source like Felt, who had his own political objectives and agenda in leaking, to blow the whistle on those kind of disclosures. So again, that actually fits much better the story of a press that is free to act only so long as it is able to cultivate insider access to information. Um, and then the final piece of the puzzle, which normally gets left out of these years, is the Newspaper Preservation Act, which is what Nixon passes in, the, in, the, uh, in his first term which is actually a formal exemption from the press for antitrust prosecution. So we've had that precedent since the AP decision sort of lurking in the background that you could theoretically prosecute newspapers under antitrust law if they act in a monopolistic fashion. And what you've had happening ever since is no real prosecutions, but an ever diminishing number of newspapers and increasing monopoly newspapers in every market. Right? You, afternoon papers have gone out of business, for instance. Morning papers is only one of them in each city increasingly. And then there are a few efforts to kind of create formal mergers between newspapers uh, in the 1960s. And then the Justice Department says, actually, this looks a lot like monopoly activity. And they dust off the old precedent and bring it to the Supreme Court and actually win a, and win a case. And at that moment, the newspaper industry goes to the Nixon administration and says, you know, we really need an exemption from antitrust law. Uh, to be able to combine in new ways. And that's the opening wedge of media deregulation politics that will soon sort of sweep across the broadcast industry as well and create a deregulated neoliberal media marketplace. Um, and that, again, fits with this model of a press that's free to do what it wants, free from regulation. The one that doesn't really produce a press that's more able to send information to the public or report because you get these monopoly papers in each city. Um, they're increasingly rich uh, sources for capital investment. Um, what they increasingly do in the late 70s is become publicly listed, which means they then need 
to uh, return a certain investment every year to sort of be able to pay dividends to stockholders. Um, and they begin to expand and chains continue to grow um, and they need to keep servicing the debt that's been taken on to expand. And they've set themselves into a very precarious economic model um, that looks by sort of the mid-70s very glamorous and powerful. Right? You've had the Pentagon Papers, you've had Watergate, you've got the new journalists who are kind of cult figures, you've got a press that's free to combine and do what it likes. But in all those cases, you're actually building on, um, you're building a, a vision of press freedom upon pretty rickety foundations around the way that you would access information and that the way that information should circulate in the polity and the economy. Um, and that, I think, is the ultimate paradox of those years, which is both the high watermark for our vision of press freedom, but also if you look at it from the perspective of the late 20th and early 21st century, all the pieces are in place for the oncoming crises. Great. And uh, I guess we'll deal with those oncoming crises now. The, the, the final chapter uh, called Sprawling Secrecy and Dying Newsrooms um, looks at the present, um, those oncoming crises that you just spoke of, um, through the lens of the history that you've been telling. And everything really does look different when situated in this longer fraught history of press freedom, whether it's the the, the rise of the internet, the uh, post 9-11 um, classified universe, uh, or even just the continual economic pressures um, that the press is facing. We have all these problems. I know historians are terrible at predicting the future or, or even prescribing uh, what should be done. But can you just elaborate on some of these problems and um, what are some things that uh, should be done in your view? Sure. So, you know, the chapter does end with a kind of discussion of contemporary reform debates. Uh, and early reviews of the book have been fairly universal uh, in pointing out that I'm not a good policy pundit and that I should stick to the history. So, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, having, with that uh, sort of understood, I'll answer the question. Um, I think the benefit of the longer view that the book provides is that the ideal is by the time you get to the end of the book, you realize that there is a very sharp difference between a politics of press freedom based around issues of speech and expression and a politics of press freedom based around issues of access to information. And what we currently think of as kind of crises of the press or crises of press freedom are actually all crises of access to information. They're not crises of expression, right? There's very little censorship in the US at the moment. There's a lot of respect for free speech. Uh, the internet uh, is an ecosystem perfectly geared for the ex uh, endless expression right, for discourse, for debate. Um, but what we have real problems with are, you know, what Lippmann began with. I mean, Lippmann argued that the right to f express your opinion is worthless unless you have a s access to a good stream of news upon which to base that opinion, right? Uh, and what we have today, I think, is excellent venues to express our opinion, both legally and in terms of the media landscape and social media and so forth. Uh, but no real way to regulate and make sure that the stream of news upon which we base our opinions uh, is healthy. Now, in the wake of the last election, I think there's been a belated recognition of that fact. Um, I mean, it's one of the nice things about, one of the nice and frustrating things about the publishing the book in March of 2016 
uh, is that I didn't know that the election was going to go the way it was going to go. Uh, although it looks like, and I, I was personally, you know, telling friends in Australia, don't worry, Trump won't win. Uh, you know, it now looks like the book was more prescient than even I was um, about some of the problems of public opinion. Uh, the reaction has there's been a sort of realization that the stream of news is is compromised, but the focus has been entirely on uh, fake news and sort of foreign conspiracy, and that there are efforts to deal with that. I think people are talking about them in terms of regulating or getting rid of those fake expressions. Uh, to me, that's that's a superficial treatment of the problem. Uh, the real problem is not trying to prohibit bad opinions or bad ideas from circulating, but actually just trying to make sure that there is good information circulating in the press in the first place. Uh, and there are two problems that the book documents. One is the economics of journalism. How do you fund journalists who are able to go and do reporting? Right? The model we had for that was based on monopoly newspapers with a kind of prime position over advertising dollars, and that fell apart. And newsrooms really cut staff by like 40% in the early 2000s. So they're just less journalists than ever before while there are more channels for them to express their opinions. So you get endless commentary rather than new journalism. So, and then the second problem is you still have runaway state secrecy and classification. And so there needs to be a way to get sort of the actual practices of the government um, more easily accessible to the public to be able to report on what's happening in, from matters related to sort of secret wars and drone warfare to you know, presidential tax disclosures, to interior decision-making within cabinet meetings. Um, and I think if you focus on both of those problems, how to produce a more vibrant flow of information, you have to hope that good information will drive out bad. Um, and I think we're currently focused on trying to drive out bad information rather than support good information in the press. Uh, how to actually go about doing that, those are my policy prescriptions, which are not that convincing apparently. Um, but I think if you focus on the, the goal is not to fix expression or opinion or debate, but to provide support for that debate by providing more information, um, good information, reported information, uh, then I think we're in a better position. Great. Uh, and so on this show, we always end with the same question, which is, uh, what are you working on right now? Yeah, so I've sort of answered this question already. I'm working on uh, really an effort to think about the foreign politics of free flows of information and mutual understanding in the 1940s, right? These debates about the American vision of a world order coming out of World War II, I think a key part of it is a vision of a world in which information can flow freely. Um, but I don't think, and we sort of know this intuitively, right? There's a lot of debate about Americanization of the world culture and globalization and the impact of American culture internationally. Um, but we don't have a good intellectual and institutional history of the kind of policies that produce that flow. Um, and so that's interesting to me both as a moment in the history of cultural globalization, um, but it's also interesting to me as a moment in the history of America's relationships with the world and its attitude to world order and American hegemony uh, in the 1940s. So I'm looking at uh, a bunch of kind of institutional sites in which Americans uh, argue or a politics of free flow of information or mutual understanding, um, the creation of the Fulbright program, the creation of UNESCO, um, and then some forgotten efforts, freedom of information re re regulations, debates about wireless uh, and flows of wireless information. And then um, the chapter I'm working on at the moment is about 
there's an there's a fairly serious effort in the late 1940s to get rid of uh, visa and passport requirements to allow people to move more freely around the world in the late 1940s, both for tourism but also for reporting. Um, and those come to very little um, for reasons that are very interesting and have a lot to do with the way the US imagines its role in the world, which is that it wants its citizens to be able to travel freely. It has very little interest in reducing its own border control. Um, and that's a pattern I'm noticing, which is that America's fr- vision of free flow is very much a vision of export, uh, not, a, mm. not a vision of import. And I think thinking about that as part of our debates about American internationalism will be helpful. Yeah, so that's what I'm currently doing. Great. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for speaking with me today. Terrific. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Dexter. To all the listeners, thank you for listening. 